Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of Spoiler Special Empire Podcasts. This one has taken a while. It is for Mad Max Fury Road. We didn't bring out a Spoiler Special Podcast for the cinematic release back in May because we didn't get to talk to George Miller. That is pretty much our hard and fast rule for these things. Unless we talk to the director, we will not produce a Spoiler Special. Fast forward a few months, the movie is now out on Blu-ray and DVD and on digital and wherever else you want to watch it. And George Miller came to London recently and I sat down with him for a long time to talk about the movie and all its various twists and turns and and whatnot. It's a fantastic interview. It's coming up very, very soon. After that, stick around because, as usual, I've assembled a Ersatz Avengers team of Empire podcast types to talk about the movie in a little bit more detail. So, uh, once again, we send our pod rig to pod town and I welcome our Imperator, Helen O'Hara. (laughs) <laughs> Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, no, wait, I'm furiosa. <laughs> About things. And uh, all the way from Dissemlian Town, the leader of Dissemlian Town himself, our Dissemlian boy, Nick Dissemlian. Hello, hello, hello. I like to think of myself as the Rictus Erectus of this podcast. <laughs> wait, I, I, I told you to put that away. You know, he's a bit stupid, but he means well, and that's essentially me. <laughs> <laughs> He's also the size of a small truck. Yes, as Rictus you can Erectus. see, I am also been working out. Yeah, no <laughs> You're very, very brawny there. Yeah. Well In case you don't want to listen to three idiots talking amongst themselves and making knob jokes, and you want to hear George Miller talking about the film, then that's exactly what we've got for you right now. As I said, he came to London the other week. I sat down with him in a London hotel room, and we talked about loads of stuff for almost an hour. Here it is. Enjoy the great George Miller talking about Mad Max Fury Road. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the great George Miller. How are you, sir? <laughs> Feeling great, thank you. No, no, I'm very well, thank you. Matt Max Fury Road is an astonishing achievement. Now you've had a bit of distance, a bit of time to look back on it. Do you revisit it? I mean, what are your thoughts on it now that some time has elapsed? Two things. One is it takes you a while to know what the work you've done, what, what it means, quite often a long time, often years, for ultimately to sort of bed down whether or not it impinges on the zeitgeist in some way. It's defined for you by the audience and the critics and just the mm-hmm. way it's received. So that's a process you're going through. You know, I've often been amazed how a critic can watch a movie and then be able to have a very quick response and write and craft an insightful review in such a short time because it takes me a lot of time to reflect over the movie. The second thing is, once the movie's done and there's nothing else you can do, you kind of don't want to see it again because (laughs) there's a feeling of, not powerlessness, but basically you've got to let it go. And I thought it was just me idiosyncratically doing that and then I just read an interview with Hitchcock. He never, ever saw any of his movies again for that very reason. He said, once it's done, there's nothing else I can do. Do you find yourself, though, watching clips? Is it hard to avoid? I watch clips. It's very interesting. One of the ways I learned to make movies was to, this is pre, you know, the modern era. If I went to a hotel room and there was a movie on or I was on an aeroplane, I'd turn off the sound and watch it as a silent movie. And flying across here to London from Australia, Mad Max Fury Road was on the aeroplane. <laughs> And I just was flicking through and I watched two-thirds of the movie as a silent movie. Just interested in the visual rhythms of the thing. Almost like revisiting a song that you might have heard once. I was quite dissociated from it, but I was just looking at it in a formal sense. Being able to watch the movie around the world with various audiences, and that's pretty gratifying to actually see the 
common responses so that there's some sort of connection or resonance you're getting with audiences where, where whatever their culture might be and that's really nice you know when they you know when, when there's an audible response to any moment there's a clap mm. here whether it's the Cannes Film Festival or Austin Texas or in Japan that, that's all, always very nice and then at a certain point you say okay that's the most I can do the, my biggest problem is it's probably too late now I've never seen the film with atmosphere or in IMAX 3D so I wish okay. I could do that but I haven't done that you don't have George Lucas tendencies you don't want to go back and tinker with the film after it's released you do that you can't I mean what's the point it's done I must say with this film I don't think there's a better film to be had out of it I think Margaret Seixel cut it basically milked everything she could found its rhythms very very well as an editor I'm happy with most of it I can't say about all the films I've made Mm. but this one you know working with all the guys from Warner Brothers I mean we gave it its best shot absolutely one of the things that's come out of it as well though I'm struggling to recall a film in recent times that has had other directors so excited. I've seen lots of action directors basically say that we've just been taken to school by George Miller. We've just you know, He's just shown us how to make an action movie. Is that a gratifying thing to hear that? I must say it is the kind of full-hearted, positive feedback I've had on the film from people whose work I just admire so much, both filmmakers and people from the music industry. What I realise this happens with people who are successful in cultural practice is that they are really, really smart about trying to analyse why something works rather than why it doesn't. And it's reinforcing their own practice. If someone calls me, let's say an elite filmmaker, the conversation is them describing to me what they got, how they they kind of deconstruct the film for me. And I realise it's something that happens to me. I got involved in the movie industry because some movies I've walked out of the cinema throughout my life and I was like on a cloud. I was feeling so high by the sheer creativity of what I was seeing that just made me want to go out and make movies. You know, I can list the 10 movies that did that to me throughout my life. And I realized, oh, I'm giving a little bit of that back to some others. And that's very gratifying. And the other thing is the critical response. You know, when you do a film like this, there's a risk that people only see the tip and not the iceberg underneath. And we put so much effort into putting stuff, a lot of iceberg under the tip. But in a film, which is essentially one long extended chase, you're really worried that the kind of allegorical nature, the basic subtext is missing. But when you start reading reviews, which have to be written in haste, mm. where someone can dig down deep into it and say, oh, my God, these are exactly the conversations we had way back when we were writing. When they're picking up these sort of resonances, that's pretty gratifying. So, And I've never quite had it like that before on another film. I mean, you know, you do, you know, with the Happy Feats and Babe movies, which are basically obviously allegories, children's stories, but never quite like this one. You uh, at one point were going to make a first version of this with Mel Gibson a few years ago and it, it ground to a halt for a number of reasons. Would it have been the same movie or did that version change over time and what was different about it? It wouldn't have been the same movie but the essential unfolding of the movie was the same. It was based on the same storyboards. I think it would have been different, obviously, because the cast would have been different. Interestingly enough, in the decade between the year 2000 and 2013, over a decade, the technology changed 
significantly. So we were able to do things that we couldn't have done even that short time ago. Specifically, the resolution and the agility of the cameras. There was nothing like the edge arm, which was that wonderful vehicle with a crane on it, with three-headed human beast, uh, one a driver, one moving the crane with toggle switches, and the other with a camera-focused pan and tilt. And it was like being in the middle of a video game with me sitting in one seat, literally in amongst those big battle staged way out there in the African desert. Now, we could not have done that, where the camera can swoop inches off the ground right up into, say, you know, Tom Hardy's face mm. on top of the war rig or something like that. And the cameras were getting smaller and with a higher revolution in that time. And our crash cameras, back in the day, had we smashed one of those cameras, there goes a quarter of a, of a million US bucks. Now we could take those little Canon cameras and even in Africa go to the airport and buy another one for 1,500 US dollars. (laughs) And that was a big thing. And the 3D conversion was impossible back then. Even shooting native 3D would have been very difficult. By the time, with all the delays in the movie, we had built our own 3D, small 3D cameras to get inside the cabins and stuff, but it was too risky. If they broke down, they were basically custom-built cameras and if they broke down in the desert, we would still be there shooting because we had so many cameras on the action you only had basically one take so that would not have happened and, and now 3d conversion if you're very very meticulous about it can be impeccable for example back then was furiosa a big part of it was it the same essential story it, five wives exactly the same furiosa story. Yeah. yeah it was exactly the same story i think we were able to develop backstory much deeper when brendan McCarthy and I worked on the screenplay in the storyboard version way back then. We hadn't dug down deep into the subtext and then Nicola Thuris came along on and off over the time in between Happy Feet movies. We dug down way down deep into the subtext. For instance, every prop, every weapon, every piece of costume, every gesture, every phrase had to had to have some backstory. The Doof Warrior is part of the design principles of the movie that everyone had to basically follow so that it could be some sort of glue to keep it coherent. You know, we knew exactly where his guitar came from. If you look at the guitar, there's a hospital bedpan yeah. in the middle of it. Yeah. We knew exactly where that came from. We also had to explain to ourselves how a man who couldn't see and couldn't speak could only play a guitar. How did he survive? in the wasteland and so on. That sort of deep work we probably didn't have time to do. That was one of the benefits of the many delays on the film. I mean, the film was greenlit three times, but somehow Doug Mitchell, who we call the honey badger, you know, because his tenacity, my producing partner, it just kept on coming back. As I say, you couldn't kill it with a stick. And so, yeah, it would have been a different film. Interestingly enough, as you point out, the story would have basically been the same. I will say this other thing too. For instance, those guys on the pole, we call them the polecats that Mm -hmm. swing to and from. In the original version, I thought we could never do that without the mechanics of that would not work. So my intention was to do it CG. In other words, real comp in real guys on the pole, but the vehicles aren't moving. But as time went on, it gave Guy Norris and his stunt rigging crew and whatever the opportunity to actually make that work properly. So they were literally practical guys up there. We had Tom Hardy up there. So those sort of things were delays worked in our favour. Some of the images, especially in that, that final chase, are astonishing. Obviously there's a little bit of compositing going on bringing vehicles together and, and yeah. putting on the screen together. By and large, you, you did all that stuff practically, for yes. real. Which is insane. 
<laughs> in a very nice it, way. Yeah, on the surface is insane, and I probably should <laughs> own up to being insane. Plenty of people who keep telling me that, and particularly <laughs> my family. When you really think about it, we don't defy the laws of gravity. There are no mm. flying human beings, no spacecraft, no alien worlds. If you can take a car with real humans in a real desert and crash it, mm. why do it CG? Because the dynamics of the dust, this is an off-road movie. Uh, Furiosa turns off the road fairly early in the movie. Why try to reproduce all of that when you can actually do it for real. I mean, it's a very grounded movie in that way, so it doesn't make sense. However, the CG allows you to do that supporting stuff, which you could never do in the past. I mean, you know, famously, the great movie like Jaws, and know that Stephen was just, and everyone was worried about the changing water and the changing sky, one shot to the next. Well, now you can change that. And I remember you used to watch all those great action movies back in the 70s and 80s, you know, the French Connection and the Bullets and all those you know, great Roger Corman movies. And you could always tell, you know, when I wasn't making movies, how many takes they did. You'd see the skid marks on the road (laughs) and how many tie marks. Well, now you can erase them. Shot across the desert and pristine sand, take after take, you'd end up with lots and lots of tire marks. We could erase them. And the sky, we shot over 130 days, but the story happens only over three days. So we were able to sort of make the skies more uniform, very, very simply in the DI, just composite in another sky. So most of all, of course, we we were able to keep our our cast and stunt crew safe Mm. with big heavy cables and, and rigging platforms that were able to, you know, stop them falling to their deaths. And, and so, so, so all those war boys up on top of the war rig, you know, all had a harness on them attached. So if they fell, no one's going to die. They're just going to slip over the side a little bit and be supported by their harness. So easy to erase. Back in the day, you couldn't do that. I used to watch those westerns, you know, where the two guys were fighting on top of a train. It's a pretty scary thing to do. But you could tell they were just trying to find purchase, even when they're swinging a punch and they were rolling around. It wasn't a free wild fight because it was too dangerous and now they can be as wild as they dare to be because you can harness them. I read an interview recently as well with your DP John Seal who said that basically there isn't a single frame in the movie that you didn't manipulate in some way whether it was changing the color or changing the frame rate so during the chases you would slow some some shots down you would speed some shots up Uh, can you talk about that that approach? I think there might have been two insert shot somewhere right. in the movie that in some way wasn't manipulated but you're quite right in the di yeah. it was probably manipulated i mean okay. if, with a movie like this which is getting up towards three thousand shots you've really got to be assiduous about eye scan otherwise it just becomes visual noise mm-hmm. back in the day a movie like mad max 2 had 1200 shots this is over twice the number mm-hmm. in almost the same amount of time i remember someone told me that the first jurassic park had 950 shots and still a powerful movie so we're reading movies much much faster the enduring analogy of cinema to me particularly action movies is that it's exactly like music Mm -hmm. the same thing that the composer goes through the causality between one note and the other is exactly the same causality you need between one shot 
side and the other. The composer looks at all those musicology things. I mean, I'm not a musician, but, you know, the chord progression, tempo, tonality, mm. all of those sort of things are exactly the sort of things you're looking at. And when the image in the digital age is so plastic, it allows you to reframe. So the eye scan is much more precise. You can create vignettes or light an area a little bit more brightly because your eye tends to go to the brighter image mm -hmm. part of the screen. There were speed ramps or slowing down throughout the scene. It was basically in the same way that you might do with music. You might sustain a note here, you might truncate a note here, and, and so on. And that was something that Margaret Sixel, you know, in the editing room did a lot of. I tended to push it a bit and she'd back it off. She said, you can't do too much of it. But Johnny is one of the great cameramen. When Australian cinema started in the 70s, a kind of a renaissance, he was everyone's favourite operator. He is a truly great operator. I've worked with some great cameramen, you know, Dean Semler, mm. Andrew Lesney, who mm. passed away recently did Lord of the Rings and the Babe movies and Johnny and there were three really great great operators the operator in the old days his framing was sacrosanct you couldn't adjust it but now you can and you can blow up the image so it's all about where the majority of the audience's eyes are looking at any moment and that's you're looking for a creaminess a fluidity of images rather than sort of the jangle visual noise Johnny was right he came out of retirement he had retired for one month we <laughs> called him and said would you do the movie he's a big sailor he's about to sail across the Pacific and he said okay I'll do the movie but you know for someone as well established He's won Academy Awards and so on. I think this was his first digital film. And the fact that he was able to adapt to it so full-heartedly was, yes. was wonderful. And never, ever questioned if we had to reframe here or there or, or push the colour here or there. He really understood what we had to do. Without going on too long, the night sequences in the movie, we talked a lot about them. Very hard to light massive landscapes at night. But then it occurred to us it's exactly, it's day for night exactly as they used to do in the Westerns. Because the reason... <laughs> they did it day for night is that horses don't have headlights and <laughs> our war rig can't put on its headlight it doesn't even have headlights at work anyway yeah. they couldn't put it on because they give away their position in the night the war party could have any headlights it liked because they're the oppressor it was very easy and suddenly we we got that look in the mist that was purely day for night there would be no other way to do it and i don't think day for night's been done in a movie like that for quite a, a long time but johnny was very very open to it and actually loved the result a lot of other people were saying oh you can't really do that anymore it's going to look really cheesy and so mm. on absolutely amazing that, that sequence where they're going through the green place and the, the scavengers are on yeah. stilts. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's an amazing, enduring image. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, for some reason, I'm obsessed with the kinetics of cinema. I came to cinema basically trying to understand how film language evolved, and the action movie basically harks back to the silent era when this new language, not much more than 100 years old came along it's a language we all wherever we are in the world learn to read before we can read books and it's an evolving language it's an acquired language that evolves so we're reading it faster and faster and faster you see little kids mm. just barely babies watching tv mm and responding to it and laughing. You know, I'm still trying to get my head around that. And I think what it is, still being interested and rather beguiled by what we call film language, I think we put a lot of that into this movie. Mm. And I think that's one thing that people are responding to. 
let's talk about some specifics now in terms of the, the film itself, in terms of the story and, and where you take it. Max himself is a very interesting character in the movie. Can you talk about your approach to Max? I mean, in terms of, did you want to make him exactly the same character as Mel's iteration of this character? Or did you want to introduce some new wrinkles, something that was, that was purely for this film? It's a great way to put it, some new wrinkles. I mean, the thing that dawned on me after having done the earlier movies, that he is a sort of a, a pretty archetypal figure in all of storytelling. The lone wanderer, usually a warrior, searching for meaning in a wasteland. It's throughout all cultures in one way or another. I mean, you've probably heard me say this before, but in Japan, the first Mad Max, they, they recognised him. When I wasn't even aware of him, they recognised him as a Ronin mm. samurai wandering. In France, they said he's very much like the American Western hero, and they called the Mad Max movies Westerns Westerns on Wheels and Scandinavia here's the, the lone Viking you know even in indigenous Australian culture which is normally nomadic there's always the sort of the often stories of the lone wanderer he was kind of every man mm. in the wasteland it's an opportunity to, to sort of reinterpret him his arc tends to be always the same trying to find a better self trying to avoid engagement with others the reluctant hero in many many ways yes always about avoidance because engagement with other human beings is too painful so that was taken much more to an extreme on this movie the classic road warrior of this story was furiosa because the the five wives needed a road warrior and it couldn't be a male because that's a different story one may man, man t- stealing from a, the five wives of a warlord it had to be a she so max and furiosa couldn't inhabit the same mm. dramatic real estate so max basically starts as a wild animal effectively yes. Probably as mad as we've ever seen him, actually. Yeah, as a, yeah he's as, truly Mad Max. Yeah. As wild and feral. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why this crazy fan theory grew up, that he might be not Max, but the, the feral child from Mad Max 2, all grown up, which is absolutely 100% not the case. It's an interesting theory, but for me in Mad Max 2, the feral mm. kid becomes the narrator as an old yeah, yeah. man and says, you know, he lives now only in my memory at the end because he becomes the leader of the great northern tribe, as they call him. So it never occurred to me that it could possibly be Max. However, people have said he could have had these adventures on the way. But, you know, these films are allegories. Yeah. And the nature of them is that we can interpret them according to our own worldview. The stories ultimately are in the eyes of the beholder and people take from it what in a sense they want or want want to see I, I think that's a, that's a kind of a poetic dimension to it and that's the nature of poetry it's a subjective response so I'm surprised actually how many unconscious or unwitting resonances come from movies like this like I never knew and never even occurred to me that in some cultures the left arm which Furiosa has lost mm-hmm is the female, so she's lost a female side. The only reason she's lost the left arm uh-huh. is, from my point of view, is that she's driving on the left-hand side. We're going to be shooting a lot from the right-hand <laughs> side, and it saved a lot of CG. It's expensive to create the left arm, so it could always be down by her side. <laughs> but these things pop up, you see, and that's really interesting. That's happened so often when you work in this sort of in these metaphorical ways. And one of my favourite stories was Bohemian Rhapsody when they asked. It must have been Freddie Mercury. Someone had asked, had said, "Look, I, I think I know what the song means," and put forward their thesis. And Freddie Mercury apparently said, "If you see a deer, it's there." It's true. <laughs> you know, we or stories Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. means something 
to yeah. each of us differently. If you're worried about abandonment, you're abandoned by your parents. If you're worried about a weak father and a strong stepmother, the father was weak and the stepmother was strong. If you're worried about overindulgence and mm -hmm. you eating all the candy and gingerbread <laughs> bread and so on, if you then you have, you know all those things you take from the story what you need. Absolutely, but having said that, you may now have just uh, given more credence to that theory. Now, now people on the internet will be going, George Miller has not denied it. <laughs> it could be true. Well, I can't but... deny it because uh, <laughs> yeah, I've never thought of it. But you know, the kid was feral, and Max yeah. definitely is feral at the beginning. It's interesting. There are little elements, similar nods to the previous movies: a leg brace, the, the coat, the yeah. car, the yeah. music box. Yeah. So, it's... and that was the same jacket in yeah. many cases that Mel Gibson wore. Years before, we dug it out, out of a chest somewhere. <laughs> and it fit. Yeah, it fit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that is serendipity. Just talking about Max as well, you do something very interesting at the beginning of the movie where Max gets captured by the war boys, brought to the Immortan Joe's Citadel, and then he tries to escape. And we as an audience think, oh, he's going to escape and go on the run and the movie will begin. But he actually gets captured again. What was the reasoning behind that? Was that to show us Joe's world, to show us the Citadel? Y yes. And, yeah. To create... A question about where is he? What kind of world is he going into? I mean, this whole story, it's quite enigmatic in many ways. We had to budget out the exposition as we go. You pick up the characters and the backstory and the dynamics between the characters and indeed the world on the run, as it were. Mm -hmm. So Max escaping that first time does a lot of things. It tells you, hey, he's determined to escape. Yeah, even though he's chained, he's got a muzzle on like a wild animal, he'll do anything to get away. But it also gives us an opportunity to learn more about the Immortans world mm -hmm. and learn about Max, that he's quite demented. Yeah, that, that was the reason for it. The concept of blood bags, where did that come from? In Kosovo was the last time I've heard of it, where they actually had people with the correct blood types taken prisoner. Didn't have refrigeration or the means to actually give blood to someone who might have needed it. It happened right through the 20th century. In World War Two, the Russians did it, the Germans did it. The soldier had their dog tags. Mm -hmm. I learned the other day that the SS had their blood types tattooed in their armpit. You know, it, it's a very, very reasonable thing to do. We all give blood, we go to the blood bank, it's stored, it's tagged, it's refrigerated, and then it goes off to someone else, and this is cutting out that middle process. One of our cats had a bleeding disorder, it ate rat poisoning, and it was bleeding to death, and the vet calls up at three o'clock in the morning and says, we have to give it a blood transfusion, and then he goes off to get his mother-in-law's cat because he knows that his mother-in-law's cat has the same blood type as our cat. <laughs> so it's a very common thing. And okay. it basically started with the notion that in the world of the Immortan, mm -hmm. that everyone is a commodity. Everyone carries his logo on the back of their necks. Mm -hmm. And Max is a blood bag, the girls are breeders, they're milkers. The milkers are milk for their mother's milk. The war boys are cannon fodder. In fact, at one point, splendid and capable talk about that very thing. That was Max's thing. And you have this lovely thread throughout the movie, obviously, where Max, at the beginning of the movie, tells the audience, my name is Max. But he holds on to his own name in dialogue. Yeah. until the very end, when he's softened enough in his relationship yeah. with Furiosa. But he also becomes, willingly, at the end, her blood bag. Can you talk about that? Yes, I mean, you can't double up on characters' arcs. And so Max 
who wasn't the ostensible action hero, to some degree a subversion of that, and it was Furiosa who was doing more what is the usual in that sense. But to some degree, Mac had to relinquish self-interest to some degree, and by actually having basically been given his blood to Nux and everyone else willingly gives it to her is a gesture of regard. I don't go as far as to say love, but a kind of empathetic human regard to another, mm-hmm. someone that... Yeah, the two of them start off when they first meet trying to kill each other and then somehow they find honour between the two of them and through that they survive. That was the most Max could do for her and then basically find a green place in the Citadel and say, okay, we're going to go back there. Was that always a plan as well, the idea that they would go in search of the green place and then circle back on themselves to come to the Citadel? Yeah, to come back to the place that you set out from and find it anew in common in storytelling. You told me the last time we spoke that the idea at the end with Max going off now wandering on his own was to essentially test Furiosa now and now she's in charge of the Citadel she's in the yes. same place that the Immortan was and we all know that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Oh, there you go, that's it. You know, do you see Furiosa coming through this test? That's a big question Mark. <laughs> that's a, because you look at history and yesterday's hero is often today's tyrant. You see that throughout almost all of history. The thing that you build, you love too much, and you become holdfast mm-hmm. and rigid. This is classic Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. You become rigid, and you can't adapt, and you effectively become a tyrant in one way, to some degree or another. And the cycle begins again when there is another disruptive force that comes along, mm. a revolution, an evolution, a change, and once again builds up to some sort of orthodoxy and becomes rigid and that cycle goes on and on and on through history through corporations through football teams through film studios through filmmakers through families it's a very 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 common story in my mind i think furiosa probably got more going for her than morton joe did when he started this place i mean Morton Joe in his own time was a hero. There's a whole backstory to him having been a military guy and actually kind of accumulating gangs together, go essentially probably on motorbikes across the wasteland. And basically was smart enough to bring in people to be the bean counter, to bring in someone like the Doof Warrior, mm-hmm. who most everyone else would have discarded, but saw him as a musical accompaniment to his warfare. But he built this place and he's aging and he has to hang on to it somehow and he becomes the tyrant. He controls the major resource water and also the gas from Gastown and the bullets from Bullet Farm. He's effectively a tyrant. In Mm. his own mind, he thinks he's doing great. Furiosa, I think, has probably got more bandwidth, more humanity in her and she's probably got a bigger chance. But she could just as easily become a tyrant. Is this a hint at where you might be going with the wasteland if if Um, that happens? It could be. I won't give too much away. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Is it also Max's decision to walk away at the end? Is part of that, A, he's happy being on his own. He doesn't want necessarily to play happy families in the Citadel. But is it also that he recognises that by staying that he might either see this happen to Furiosa or even that it might happen to him himself? That's really interesting. I don't think he's ready yet. It's only been three days since he was the trapped wild animal in the story. And I don't think he's ready yet for happy families. I don't think he's ready yet to take on that other responsibility, having given that, in a sense, been her facilitator, basically giving hope. The guy who said, 
Hope is a mistake. He's given them and her hope and the world hope, but it's not for him. And in the classic sense of these guys, he moves on, as the first history man said, in search of his better self, in search of a better self. He just couldn't say. Initially, in the very first storyboard draft, he went up with them, but it just didn't seem right. And I remember Tom Hardy and Charlize and everybody just said, something's wrong with Max. Nico Luthura said, he just can't go there with them. It's, he's not ready yet. He hasn't really earned it. Off mm. he goes. Off he goes. And of course, he no longer has his car, which has been spectacularly totaled. I yeah. Mean, so is he on foot now? Is he just wandering? We'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to see. <laughs> What's the plan for the future, George? Because I know that we spoke about a month or so ago and you said, you had a smaller film. I imagine every film is a smaller film compared to Free yeah. Road. But you had a smaller film you wanted to do first. Is that still the case? A really, really small film. I've okay. got two really small films and no visual effects, you know, no period. I'm drawn to story. I'm drawn to making films mainly by how compelling the story is. The story gets in the back of your brain and won't let go until somehow you get it made one day. And the other thing is the technology. So way back, just lucky enough for the digital dispensation to come along with the first baby, we can make a pig talk. And then Andrew Lesney showed me the Gollum motion capture from the first Lord of the Rings. I said, the penguins can dance. And, and so we was always looking at where the technology is and to go back and to do Mad Max with this new digital technology and the new cameras and you know, 3D conversion and all of that sort of stuff was very, very enticing. But I'd like to make a movie that basically doesn't kind of explore the cutting edge of technology so much and just do something much more intimate, mm -hmm. just to kind of clear the exhaust out <laughs> before we go back to, I don't know, something else like The Wasteland. Okay. So when would this other film go, do you know? The smaller I, film? I can't even say right now because I don't know. I've, I've just been doing all the things I couldn't do while we were making the movie. Family time and, and also, even though I've lived in Australia all my life, there are parts of Australia, like deep outback, that I'd never been to. And I was determined that we'd all go there and just go bushes, they say, <laughs> and go and really go down, deep down into, say, as much as we could into indigenous culture and their storytelling sure. because they're the longest 45,000 years of continuous storytelling through their song lines and performance and their painting. In search, I'm trying to figure out how this painting was done in the middle of the Australian desert in the 70s, these classic dot paintings, yeah. which was white dots and was about the last ice age 20,000 years ago. So here was a desert culture done by a desert artist who'd never seen snow or ice doing a painting that was passed down orally, not yes. written, across 20,000 years ago. And wow. I couldn't find all the stories of the painting, but it had been curated. I've been doing a lot of that sort of thing, and now you get that itch again to try to go out, try to figure out how to make a good film. Because on your CV, you tend to take a bit of a gap in between projects. Yeah. But are you now hoping to make films more quickly, make the smaller one? And then, the smaller ones and mean you can do it quickly. Yeah. There has to be some gravitation pull to a story. I just can't pick up a script and say, oh, we'll go out and make that film. There's something deeper and more compelling to actually try to tell the story. All I do now, ever since I was a kid, is make up stories and I'm hardwired for that. So I don't really have a choice. Just stories come to me and some of them just are more insistent. We're talking about a lot of things, but mm. I know the one thing I want to do is a small, quick film mm -hmm. just to clear the exhaust somehow. Absolutely. Furiosa is fascinating and the idea of the Five Wives and the Fuvalini, and it's a very female-heavy film, which was something that you wanted right from the off. 
There was no specific agenda. It came purely out of the mechanics of the story. Given that the basic triggering idea was that the MacGuffin was to be human, and in this case five females, <laughs> breeders, fleeing from a warlord, trying to make a healthy heir, they needed a road warrior. It had mm -hmm. to be female, couldn't be a male, that's a different story. And she kind of grew out of the warrior woman from the second Mad Max. Briefly, she appears mm -hmm. in the second Mad Max. She gets killed in the mm -hmm. final chase. And I always thought about how could a female survive in this wasteland, in this medieval world, basically. So once that was there, the rest kind of followed organically out of that basic structure. Where she came from, the green place, was basically a matriarchal place, mm -hmm. hence the Vervolini and so on. That was the conscious process. The unconscious process, I think there's something out there in the zeitgeist where people are addressing the issue of women. I think mm -hmm. we see some cultures in which they're way too oppressed and, and there's a sort of a liberation that's been going on. It's not much more than a century old and of course there have been different outliers in history. You have the ascendance of powerful women, you know Catherine the Great and the, the Great Queens and so on and the great military leaders in the past occasionally you see. The other thing I say unconsciously, I personally grew up in a very male culture. I have no sisters. I've got three brothers. I went to all-boys school. I went to medical school where there were not many women, about 30% were studying medicine. As time went on, I have a daughter, a partner, a mother, all very, very strong you know, vital women, and I think that sort of creeps into one's personal psyche. And then you get an actor like Charlize, who sort of, to me, is furiosa. When I see that other Charlize with the blonde hair and walking the red carpet, that's not, that's not Charlize. <laughs> She's furiosa. <laughs> when you come up with a character like Furiosa, though, who is someone who, as you say, needs to be not just strong, but incredibly strong to survive, not just to survive in uh, Morton Joe's world, but to become his imperator, become the focal point of his war boys and his army puts a lot of pressure on you doesn't it to write a character that has all these traits and can live up to that billing how difficult was it to actually write Furiosa once we figured out her backstory it wasn't difficult at all how she lost her arm, how she became an imperator. It's a kind of meritocracy. If you survive, if you can ride, drive a war rig and you're really good at it, it doesn't matter what your gender is. It's always difficult. But not <laughs> That character wasn't specifically difficult. It's okay. always difficult to write. Yeah. There's a sense that this is not something she's put together on the spur of the moment. This is something she's been planning for a while to break out the five wives yeah, and, yeah. and run for it. Yeah. How long roughly has that been in the planning for her at this point? With the five wives, in my mind, in my backstory, mm. it's been a year. Mark Sexton, one of the storyboard artists, and Nico Thuris and I told the backstory of how she was sent to guard them when they became fertile in a comic book. She was sent to guard them because she's female when they're actually fertile. And he didn't dare send in a male guard. And that's why they had the chastity belts, which unfortunately is something we see in the medieval world. The wives got to her questioning why she put all her skills in the service of a tyrant. And then she revealed where she came from and, OK, let's make a break for it. Later on, when we meet the Fuvalini, you told me recently that Megan Gale's character, the Valkyrie, initially survived, but you had to kill her off because Megan had to leave the shoot and yeah. go somewhere. Did anything else change in the course of the film? Did any other characters' fates end up different from the initial plan? She had to go off to make a baby and the timing of it. So we had to kill her off early, which is <laughs> because I somehow imagined that Furiosa and her friend from the past would end up at the Citadel to help sort of run it. 
you know, little tiny things like I wanted to make sure that the audience knew that the Doof Warrior survived at the very end of the final crash. Okay. But somehow, just by the guitar coming forward and going back, he could still survive that crash, maybe, because <laughs> he's supported on Bungie. Yes. But I, I never actually got a Doof Warrior in there. You never show it, final yeah. You never show it. I think the, the Megan Gale character was the biggest change that we were forced to do. Who's got the biggest arc in the movie for you? Is it? Max. Fur- it's Max. Yeah. It's interesting that Furiosa doesn't have much of an arc because you're usually looking... Oh, I'm sorry, Max and Nux. Nux has got the biggest arc. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, Nux. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he goes 180 from his belief. And actually, he behaves like the classic Campbellian hero in that he ultimately relinquishes his self-interest the mm. most for the greater good, for love, really, which is available to him, to the younger people, in contrast to Max and Furiosa, who are too basically damaged to even go there very far. But Nux got the flexibility and the just basic life energy to actually switch from this fanaticism and this intense belief that this is the day he's going to die historic on the Fury Road to actually deep disillusionment yes. and failure and then finding someone else to believe in. But ultimately, of course, he does die on the Fury Road. And you can imagine that one day some people will be singing songs about Nux and his sacrifice and what he did to rest yeah. back the, the Citadel. Can you talk about that decision to have Nux ultimately die? And at the end, his belief system's been shattered at that point. He no longer thinks, I'm off to Valhalla. I'm not going to ride shiny and chrome. Well, it's an interesting thing because whatever your belief system and afterlife, again, I keep on referring to Joseph Campbell because what's interesting about him, they're not just his opinions. Basically, he spent 40 years studying comparative religion and found what was in common in all mythology and storytelling and folklore and indeed the great mythologies which become the mainstream religions. There was always this notion of, you know, the hero myth and usually a figure drawn into the unknown by some trickster character, ultimately undergoing great trials and ultimately relinquishing self-interest and bestowing a boon on his world and his society. That's the universal story. And one of the notions in storytelling and in Campbell, again, this is something he's distilled out of all of storytelling tradition, and we see it classically in the modern day in in George Lucas's Star Wars. One of the notions in it is to find the eternal in the now, Mm -hmm. to be in the moment. So Nux, who has no future, Mm -hmm. lives out his moment. When he gets to drive the war rig, he's always wanted to drive the war rig, and the great triumph of his life was being able to drag that war rig out of the bog. And he rejoices in that moment. I mean, he's fully in that moment. And in that moment when Capable touches his lips, his scarred lips, that's just a, a pure, purely in that moment. And that's all we have, really. And I think that's what Nux has learnt, and then realising he's doomed anyway and let's use it for some greater purpose so again that's one of the things we all face in our own worldview our own philosophy you know all we really have is the present and there's no guarantee of a future so live it as Campbell says be joyful in the sorrow and majesty of life now we try to tell ourselves that every day certainly Nux learns that fantastic George we've got to go in a second can I just throw a couple of really really quick things at you yeah, yeah. very very quickly I love the idea in this world that anything could be a weapon Furiosa's gear stick which is also a knife yes where did that idea come from Oh, I don't remember. Oh, you know, you used to see those walking sticks, those canes that people would walk around in past centuries and they would have a knife 
hidden in them, I guess, something like that. And it would stand to reason. You hide weapons all around your vehicle. I guess those two things. I mean, it came out of the logic. If you're running a war rig, how do you protect that war rig? The driver would be under siege, just like pirate ship. If you can take over the captain, you take over the ship, you win the cargo. And it's the same thing with that knife. Okay. People are starting to get tattoos. I mean, I have some degree of guilt when I see people making tattoos of the movie's characters and slogans from the movies. But I've seen on the internet someone's done a beautiful tattoo of the knife and blade, the bone handle and oh, the, really? on their forearm. It looks wonderful. <laughs> I don't feel any guilt about that. That's yeah. great. The last thing I'll ask is one of Max's big moments is when he dispenses with the bullet farmer, which is done off screen. Can you talk about that decision? It's a very interesting way to portray that. Well, he's somebody again you're trying to work off the usual trope we could do a big action sequence but we also wanted to have a sense that somehow he was a there's an element to him of of being a bit of a mythical warrior so to disappear into the mist again it's a moment of relinquishing his own self-interest well if you're not back by the time the engines have cooled and he says well you keep moving so he's out there alone already with just some weapons in the mist it just reminds us there is a mystique to him rather than going to do and set up another action bit i think i know what happened in that mist (laughs) and why he got the blood on him and so on. Everyone can have their own version because we just didn't want another action sequence and we Mm. gained by the mystery of it. It's fantastic. George, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much indeed. Fantastic, Chris. Thank Thank you. you. And that was George Miller talking about Mad Max Fury Road. We touched upon a lot of stuff in that interview. There's a lot of stuff that we didn't get round to because George is a talker. He's a lovely, lovely guy and he really gets into stuff in depth. There's a ton of other stuff that we did touch upon in a separate interview for Empire Magazine that is in the Mad Max Fury Road viewing guide, which is actually in our current issue. It's on sale right now. It's our Spectre issue, guest edited by Sam Mendes. There's a four-page viewing guide in there in which George Miller sheds light on some details we didn't talk about in the interview and we're going to be mentioning a few of them as we go along now and we talk about the film in greater depth I strongly urge you to seek that out as well ally that to this spoiler special and I'd say there isn't much that isn't revealed about Mad Max Fury Road but anyways let's get into it now with Helen hello and Nick Hello. It's important that they speak so you know which one's which. <laughs> Actually, a bit of a bugbear of mine on podcasts. Some podcasts where people go, oh, I'm joined by three people and then they don't speak so you don't know who's speaking for the rest of the podcast. Anyway, so, but that's important. So Helen is the one that sounds like this. Hello. And Nick's one that sounds like this. I'll be the one saying the foolish things. <laughs> Helen be the one saying the insightful stuff. Is that how it works, Helen? Oh, very much so. Pretty Probably much? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> so what we've done, sometimes for spotter specials, especially now for a film that's been out for about three or four months, we get a reader to send in some questions and we're going to try and tackle some of those questions and from there we're going to spin off into various talking points. The first question comes from Chris Hewitt who says, is Fury Road the best film of the year so far? It's definitely up there. I think we can all agree on that. I have a very big love of Inside Out Ooh, which would be okay. up there for me as well. Yeah. Don't know, it's top two or three for me certainly. There's no question about that. Nick? Number one for me. Number one for Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yeah. Can you go back to the first time you saw it? It's now been a few months. The first time we saw it, did it blow you away? Did it, was it everything you were expecting? Absolutely. I like the original trilogy. I mean, I like the second film more than the other two. I went in with this not expecting this to be my film of the year. I, I didn't go in complete jest. I mean, George Miller, great director, but not everything he's made recently has been fantastic. Happy Feet 2, looking yeah. at you. Oh. I went in just hoping for a decent action movie. I was blown away. I came out just jazzed. It really feels that he was pushing, and he, he talks about it a bit in that interview as well, that he is pushing constantly the bounds of kineticism in cinema and the grammar of action cinema in particular. And it was quite interesting what he said there about having watched it silently on an airplane. He watched Mad Max, he watched Fury 
Fury Road. He was on their plane and he saw someone watching it and he was watching it over their shoulder without the sound to see whether it still played. And for me, this film is very much like George Lucas also tried to map out the Star Wars films mm. so that visually they would tell a story. And for the most part, that works. So you can watch them silently and go, OK, I get it. That's the good guy. That's the bad guy. That's what's happening here. And I think with Fury Road, he's really pushed that. I haven't done it yet, but I would like to watch it silently one day just yeah. to see whether it plays. It was initially written with storyboards rather than screenplay. Yeah. So I think that that does kind of play out. That does ring out. I think you could watch it silently. I think it would be still be pretty stunning. Actually. I kind of did last week. I was on a plane coming back from America and I was walking back down the aisle at one point and everyone was watching Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> As it was intended to be seen on the second <laughs> screen. I know, but it's just like you just were looking at people's screens and there's just carnage happening, happening on every screen. They're all at different points in the movie. And I just was sort of standing there staring at one for about two minutes just watching mm. the stilt carnage. It's one of my favourite bits. People with chainsaws on gigantic poles Mm. They're not really stilts, are they? More kind of, how do you describe them? Sort of bungee poles in a way. He he calls them poles. He calls them poles. He calls them pole cats. Amazing. It blew me away because of how unconventional it is as well. Not just the way the movie plays out, not just, say, the treatment of Max within the movie or some of the narrative choices it makes, but also the way it just plunges you straight in. Mm. The opening credits, the opening 10, 15 minutes, it just throws you into this world. It bombards you with a load of names and a load of terms that it takes you a while to get used to. Ah, but thankfully all the names are freaking awesome yeah so that helps and i think also it's a beautiful beautiful film that is notable for not just everything that he did practically which was a lot but also everything that he did digitally which is also a lot like a Mm -hmm. hell of a lot Mm -hmm. and i think everybody was so excited about the amount that was done practically at first that i think people overlooked the vfx contribution i think Mm -hmm. it's a brilliant example of those two working hand in hand in the same way that the best christopher nolan action sequences have them working hand in hand i think it's an absolutely beautiful melding of the two to get that visceral incredibly dangerous feel and I think two-headed radiation gecko (laughs) will go down as one of the best CG characters of the year it definitely shows how to do an incidental animal as opposed to a gopher that opening scene that's the opening shot of the year for me I know it's not technically quite the first shot but it's the first shot if you don't count the, the kind of montage stuff at the beginning yeah it's an amazing shot of just the gecko going right and starting right next to the camera and then skittering all the way over to him then him stomping without looking at it yeah flicking it up with his foot <clears throat> yeah and then putting it in his mouth it's just that's the way you start a film it's fantastic what's interesting about the beginning is what it doesn't deliver as much as what it does deliver. I'm kind of intrigued by the idea that we're coming to this from having watched all the previous Mad Max movies. I do wonder what this movie would be like for someone who's never seen a Mad Max film, who had no idea about the scenario or anything. For us, it's really interesting that you think you're going to get this massive car chase right at the beginning, and you don't get that. Mm. And what he does instead is that he takes away Max's car, the, the Fiat Interceptor, right from the beginning, and then taunts him with it all the way through the movie with Slit, Josh Hellman's character driving it instead and then it gets completely totaled I love that idea that right from the beginning that he keeps subverting it he keeps you on your toes you think okay Max has been captured now so now he's going to get free and that's going to be the chase but it's not he gets captured again immediately maybe from a storytelling point of view that might be I don't know some people might go well that's bad you can't have your hero captured twice in the first 10 minutes but I quite like that I quite like the fact he was undercutting expectations right from the off yeah absolutely I think you have to I'll be honest I tried to watch Thunderdome not that long ago and hated it <laughs> not hated it but just couldn't just wasn't Don't feeling make me it tell Auntie I just that. wasn't <laughs> feeling it you know so I'm actually quite glad that they just shook things up and completely subverted your expectations to the point of everybody went in expecting it to be Tom Hardy's film and it was Charlize Theron's film mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Not that yeah. he's not good, but she's yeah. better. And she picks an accent and she sticks with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's overrated. I like Tom Hardiness. I still can't shake in my head the Mel Gibson version. I know that, you know, we're meant to be boo, Mel Gibson, but he is Matt Max for me. He is Max Rockatansky mm-hmm. for me. And knowing that 
George Miller got this close. For people who can't see us, I'm making a small gap between my finger and my thumb. He got this close to making essentially what would have been this movie in 2002-2003 with Mel Gibson. And there's times in this movie that I kind of go, almost Tom Hardy's a little bit too insular for me. Hmm. The madness of, of Mad Max... And it does come through now and again, but there's almost he's almost playing it internally a little bit too much for me. Mm. And I think Mel Gibson would have been a raging, snarling sanity beast. <laughs> I love... A sort I of lo- Mel Gibson, if you will. <laughs> Mel Gibson, yeah. yeah. He's playing himself, essentially. I love what Tom Hardy does in this film. Because, yeah, you're right. When you go back and watch the other films, I think Mel Gibson's Mad Max is more laid back. He cracks a smile from time to time. You know, he relates to people, I think, a bit better. And Tom Hardy in this film is just a loon. He's just a brooding hulk. Mm. There's one shot specifically that I love, which is where he's strapped to the front of the car quite yes. early on. And there's just his face is right in the camera, and he's just gurning and growling to himself, and I, it's mental. Yeah, he's going for it, and I kind of I just love that Tom Hardy just goes for it because he doesn't feel like a human. He feels like he's just come straight out of a comic book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I okay. really like that because it really suits the tone of the film, which is yeah. so hyper real. When you look at the early films, I think they're much more paced like a normal film, but this is out there. It's completely out there. It's insane. But I also love the fact that it slows down. It does slow mm. down at, at several points because you need to take a breather. It slows yeah. down, obviously, after the sandstorm sequence. It slows down again when they reach what was the green place and they get to the desert area with the Fuvalini. And then it just goes mental for the last half hour or so. I always love that. I mean, I love the idea. You know, the Hard Boiled, for example. We both love Hard Boiled, mm. the way that the last half hour of that is more, actually. Hour, it's just the last hour. Yeah, it's just a deranged shootout. And this reminded me of that in many ways. You know, the same way with the raid. It's just the last half hour. So Raid 2 in particular is just insane. You cannot take a breath. Mm. And I love that. As much as I think I might have preferred Mel Gibson in this role, though, I will say very quickly about Tom Hardy. I do think it's a very well-modulated performance. And I love the idea that, for example, I'm always doing it. You know where you copy things in the movies? Now, whenever someone does something I like, I try and do a thumbs up to Lem the way he does it to Splendid. And you, you always get into a big rig to do I it. do always get into a big rig. It's really rig, weird is, in the office. Yeah, we're on the third floor. It's caused complications <laughs> in the past. I'll persevere until they get it done. But that thumbs up and the, the fact that that's the moment he smiles for the first time and begins to relate as a human being for the first time to these people that previously he's just been trying to ditch or kill I think that's a really really lovely moment and then of course the resolution of that I think we talked about this with George Miller but the, the idea that all the way through the movie he's been reluctant blood bag for Slit and for Nux and for anyone else and at the end he becomes a willing blood bag for Furiosa to keep mm. her alive and that moment when he tells her his name and gives her his blood is probably as romantic a gesture as you're going to get in a wasteland like this. I think that's really, really lovely. But it's so stripped down and you don't get any backstory and that, that I think, is really in the film's favour is yes, that it doesn't so. slow down to tell you anything. Yeah. And I think it's the bare minimum of what they can kind of get away with telling you about this character. I think that's right. And I think there's a tendency to over-explain things sometimes nowadays and I don't think we need it. Especially if you've got lots of characters, we don't need a backstory for all of them. We don't need to know everybody's childhood trauma. And I think that's yeah. a, a great well, look, Especially because there's a trend these days, even James Bond now has you know a tortured backstory and, mm. and, and stuff and it, it's really nice this kind of flies in the face of that and just goes here's a guy and he's on an adventure there you go <laughs> that's all you need I agree yeah. hopefully Spectre will be fantastic but do we really need to know everything about James Bond's childhood or where he came from yeah. the great appeal is that he's this man of mystery and his background's a blank slate and yeah. I like that with, well, maybe with Max and maybe, Furiosa yeah maybe George Miller will go in that direction if they're more Mad Max films maybe mm. we'll get to meet his dad a la Last Crusade <laughs> Mad Max's dad Mad Mike <laughs> or whatever I don't know I hope not benign Kev it's <laughs> just really nice Irk Dean <laughs> there's so much about this film that, that, to talk about let's see what we got from the readers ok here's a question from someone called Matt who wants their surname to be withheld he said I've seen it said a lot the depiction of the wives the five wives of course is problematic 
early on, specifically that they're shot in a sexy and desirable way when Max first meets them. Does this undercut the film's feminism as claimed? My personal view, Matt's personal view, is that if Furiosa had stolen gold, Max's introduction to it would be to show it all shiny and gleaming, to show that this is treasure and demonstrate why it's desirable in this world later everything equals out, so I'm not sure that the introduction is anything less than an appropriate first look. Well, what they just did, Matt, with respect, is you just compared women to things, which is the problem of that introduction. We are showing them as objects that are stolen. Now, here's the thing. I mean, I get that the world of Mad Max has been established and the world of Mad Max is a brutal one where only the strong survive, yada, yada. So certain things follow from that. I get it. My issue is that this does have the old trope And it is a trope, and we keep getting it in not just futuristic films, sort of post-apocalyptic stuff, but also when we go back, anything medieval or quasi-medieval, from Outlander to Game of Thrones. We keep being told that the natural position of humanity is that women are subjugated. And so the moment that our current civilization falls apart, or prior to our current civilization's genesis, women will be downtrodden, women will be objects, women will be possessions. And it's just an endless freaking cavalcade of this stuff now within this the Mad Max universe thing. you said you said something in the podcast ages yeah. ago when we were talking about this the main problem you had with this you saw the, the wives as chattel they are okay they are set up as chattel yes now they obviously have their own personalities and those come through but mm-hmm. they are treated initially by their society as chattel mm-hmm. and what's more lots of other women are left behind as chattel and they have no intention at the beginning of the film of rescuing them they do rescue you know the pretty ones and leave the others behind. There are all of these issues, and I get that that's the background, and I get that it's probably inevitable given the already established rules of the Mad Max universe. My problem with it is that we just keep hearing this, and I am tired of it. I'm sick to death of it. Maybe so, but that's more of a general thing. I I think within the movie, though, I think that makes a lot of sense, the way the story develops. I mean, for example, in this world, I'd be dead. Yeah, in this world, we'd all be dead. Be my Joe, he, he'd have no place for a podcast host. <laughs> and they post a pocket of the Maybe he'd want you to disseminate his propaganda. Maybe, you could be maybe. a Lord Hawk, Chris. I'm very good at disseminating. George Miller, he's not really had a feminist agenda. He says he hasn't. He didn't have a feminist agenda. He wanted Furiosa to be a woman, as he said in the interview, and he said in numerous mm. interviews. He wanted to be a woman because he felt it was just wrong that another road warrior would be a man who yeah. would be stealing women from another man. Mm. That's absolutely. A and that, that makes sense. And he did have Eve Ensler yeah. around to talk Eve- these issues through. It, I have absolutely no issues with the character of mm. Furiosa whatsoever. I think she's mm. amazing. My intrigue about the whole thing is... Furiosa's backstory and I know it's been sketched out in other places but you know was she at one point a wife that's or was very she, much the implication to yeah, me yeah or was she recognised very much as a warrior from the beginning someone who had that indomitable spirit and could also drive a big truck which helps as well I don't want to reduce this to I don't necessarily have a huge problem with it but I see where you're coming from with it and I can see the problem that you would have but I also think within the story context it works especially since you also have the other women who are left behind the implication from them is very much that they know that there's no hope for them and these are the young girls need to get out they need to have hope and they need to get the green place and get away from this monster well I don't think that's set up because I don't think those other women are given enough attention to be perfectly honest then we're talking about four hour movies well no but I'm just saying you have no basis to make that assessment of those women except that we want to make excuses for this movie because we love it that's the only reason movie there's a, okay, he has a confrontation with that old lady yeah that old lady that, but that's a different thing she's left behind to keep the guard from being raised for as long as possible I'm talking about the women who are being milked the mother's milk the mother's milk and there's no reason to think they're left behind for that anyway it's, just listen, to, just it's to one back issue to, anyway. in a very big film but it is an issue yeah just to go back to Matt's question that he's, he's asking specifically about the scene where we first where Max first encounters them it is shot like a Lynx advert it is <laughs> yeah. I guess you could say that 
we're seeing them through Max's eyes. So, yeah. that, so, fairness, that, he's, so I, that he's seeing... Yeah, it's the first time he's, he's seen... He's more excited about the water than he is about them. Well, the first thing he does is point his gun at them. So he's yeah, not he he's points not his gun at them and then and he gets rid of them so he can get at the water. And I think yeah. it's not that he's turned on by it. The audience might be, but he's not. And that's to the film's credit. Again, that's a, yeah, that's so a very sensible is... way of approaching it from a story point of view. I agree entirely. Max has no sexual interest in him. He's not a sexual being in any way, shape or form, I would say at that point. But also that sequence is shot like a fever dream. If you consider what he's just come out of, which is unconsciousness. Which is hell. Yeah, it's this massive sandstorm. And suddenly he's kind of, yeah. And suddenly he turns around the corner and is like what am I seeing because he had no idea of the existence of the, of the wives at yeah. that point and right. suddenly he's seen five incredible looking women and clean, probably the first clean and, people yeah the first clean people the first water he's probably seen in a long long time it's a very mythological film but you do kind of wonder how people survive in this landscape what do they eat where do they get all the water from Gekos. when Joe's finished dumping his aqua cola on them you know Max you know, he's a big guy he's clearly been binging in protein <laughs> so where is he getting all this stuff from I know what you mean and I know, I've seen some people who've had a problem with that scene in particular actually this shot in particular but I don't think he looks at them in any way as sexual creatures I think he looks at them as an obstacle between him and the water and the war rig and he wants to get out of it there's a lot of talk obviously about how Max is sidelined in his own film I don't feel he is because the film is about his transformation from this Mm. maniac at the beginning of the movie to a man who is complete enough as we said to give of himself to Furiosa to keep her alive at the end of the movie and also to make the decision to walk away from Furiosa and the Citadel at the end of the movie I think his arc is as strong as Furiosa's and Nux's I agree. as well. Here's the next one from Harry Keane. Hello, pod team. Hello, Harry. I'd like to ask you where you think Fury Road comes in the chronology of the rest of the series. A bit after? I'm going to say a bit before. <laughs> oh. I think it comes during all three films. <laughs> exactly. I think the answer to this is George Miller doesn't care, quite frankly, because the timeline of the movie makes little to no sense in terms of Max really should be 80, 90 years old. Yeah, if this whole society has evolved post-apocalypse. Well, you have the sequence when they're in what was a green place and that some of the older ladies in the Fufalini are looking up at the stars and they're talking about satellites and how they used to watch TV programmes. You know, that was back in the day. And you would think, okay, well, maybe they were, what, 30, 40 at that point? So that's roughly another 30, 40 years ago. What age was Max? You know, it doesn't quite add together. But, I mean, the whole series has been very consistent in setting Max up as a mythological character almost like every film has essentially ended with somebody going and that's the dude who saved us so that we could survive through the dark times I guess it's just keeping on with that yeah I don't think George Miller cares I mean he cast the same actor as two different helicopter pilots two completely different characters in consecutive films Bruce Spence in in two and three and I mean obviously this comes after one which is pre-apocalypse still dystopia mid-apocalypse mid-apocalypse early early to mid-apocalypse yeah and then two, obviously, things have gone really south. There's a music box that appears in this film, which is a callback to the music box in number two. Did you ask George Miller about this? He said that he, he didn't put that in there. So I've asked him twice about this, because one's for the magazine and one's for the podcast. There's a crazy fan theory out there that the feral child from Mad Max 2 is this Max, that he's grown up to become Max, and he's not actually Max Rokotansky, even though he claims to be. Why wouldn't he? Anyway, and the first time I spoke to George Miller about it, and I said, well, but you put all these little references, you know, there's a music box, the leg brace that he has, is the same the jacket's the same the car is the same he's clearly meant to be the same Max and Miller went yes he's the same Max he's Max it's just 
played by a different guy, like James Bond. It's just, you know, the same thing. And then this time around, I said, well, this crazy fan theory of the feral child. And he went, well, you know, that theory just as plausible as anything else, really. Uh, you know? <laughs> I said, no, George, you're not helping. You're meant to pour water on those, not fuel. It's a messy franchise, though, isn't it? If you yeah. call it a franchise, yeah. it's a series. It doesn't feel like a franchise kind of films, does it? But it's rough and ragged and messy, and I think that that's part of the appeal that none of this really makes sense but who cares yeah. there's awesome stuff happening agreed I quite like that because you know as much as we love the Marvel movies here it is getting quite at some point you're going to need a degree to keep track of where everyone is and what's happening and here you just go oh do I need to see the previous three movies to understand this no well I need to see if anything they may hurt your yes. understanding <laughs> yeah you know if they do get around to making Mad Max Wasteland you probably need to see this one first but I imagine that he won't make a major preoccupation which leads us to question three it does lead us to question three. Uh, Jake Meets says, which character or characters from the Mad Max franchise would you like to see a spin-off or origin story for? Personally, can't wait for Mad Max Origins Crazy Flaming Guitar Guy. Seconded. That should be the actual title. <laughs> that would be incredible. Mad Max Origins colon Crazy Flaming Guitar Guy 3D. The Doof Warrior. The Doof Warrior. Played by Iota. That would be wonderful, you know. What would lead a man to attach a flamethrower to an electric guitar? <laughs> He's got a dark backstory, that guy, hasn't he? <laughs> the mask he's wearing is actually his dead mum's face. Oh. You talked to him, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I spoke to him. Iota, he's a musician. So he's actually playing during those sequences. You know, they literally did strap him to a massive truck with speakers. Not all the speakers worked. The guitar did bellow flame. <laughs> you learned very quickly not to play it when they were driving into gusts of wind. It's insane. I mean, when you think about that, it's absolutely insane. Do you think there are other convoys that have different types of music playing? <laughs> so there's like some poor guy just playing like R&B, like well, doing like, an R&B song. Strata. You think somewhere there's a flamethrowing cello? Yes. Yes, I do now. <laughs> that character's amazing. And as George revealed, he's meant to have survived at the end of the movie. I always read that the guitar, the Doof Warriors guitar, coming through the, the chaos, the carnage, at the end of the movie after Nux crashes the war rig was meant to denote that everyone had died so Rictus Erectus is dead and Nux is dead and the Doof Warrior pegs it but no apparently that's meant to denote that the Doof Warrior is still alive Oh, so he's knocking around if anyone needs a musician for children's parties in the Australian apocalypse then go for it maybe don't get him (laughs) maybe don't get him he's got his own flesh mask so you don't need to supply him with that in terms of other characters from the series that should get a spin-off Master and Blaster (laughs) there's got to be a rom-com somewhere in there Master is this is from Beyond Thunderdome Master is the the dwarf and Blaster is his big muscly friend collectively known as Master Blaster creatively there's got to be some kind of romantic triangle (laughs) they both fall for the same girl I guess whatever they're into the poor woman I'd like to see Rictus Erectus get his own thing where he keeps just yelling hide a brother hide a brother that would be fun I'd quite like to see the Fuvellini get a little bit of a spin-off and the, and the Valkyrie, who, as, as George said in the interview as well, was bumped off unexpectedly when Megan Gale had to go off and have a baby. I'd like to have seen her stick around a little bit longer, as was the plan, the original plan. She wasn't deadified. And of course, yeah, it's not a, a Mad Max movie, but I would have quite liked to have seen Megan Gale as Wonder Woman in George Miller's Justice League movie, which we'll never get to see. No. But, sad. you know, it was so close to starting. All cast and everything. All cast and everything. Mm. Sets were being built. Very, very sad. And she would have been an amazing Wonder Woman, I think, based on her 10 minutes or so in this movie. But there you go. I uh, don't want to see any more of the People Eaters' feet. No. That's no. the one thing I could do without. I quite like to see how they. That relationship, though, between the People Eater, the Bullet Farmer, and uh, Morton Joe. You'd like to see their conferences, their kind yeah. of conference calls. Because the Bullet Farmer and the People Eater give Joe shit. They talk back to him. And I've always thought that was really interesting, given that he's like the, clearly the big daddy. So Mad Max triumvirate origins. Yeah, I think. Well, it's just like a board meeting. 
Mad Max board meeting. Hmm. Mad Max colon stop. annual report. Stop yeah. eating people. We're trying to have a meeting here. <laughs> eating more people. We'll go and get our staples from Stableville. <laughs> yeah, there'd be a lot of admin. They'd be getting their paper clips from Paperclip Town. Amazing. All right, here's another question from at Robert B. Brain via Twitter. George Miller was almost 70 when he made this. Explain. <laughs> no well, one can. 70 years ago, George's oh, no. parents... No, stop. Um, Please stop. Came very happy. Stop it. What? No, I think the only explanation is some people get younger as they age. I feel like, you know, Ridley Scott's just made The Martian, which feels like a, a lively and a almost joyful kind of young man's film. And, and I think this is something similar. Joyous is probably the wrong word for this one, but it feels so vital and so alive. I guess some people just get younger. That's the best I can do. Absolutely. It always feels like a bit of a shame to me as well. If you look back at George Miller's filmography, he's made four films in the last 23 years. Lorenzo's Oil, Babe, Pig in a City, and the Two Happy Feet movies. And in between are these huge gaps. I know he's been unlucky with stuff. Fury Road fell apart a couple of times, and obviously Justice League fell apart as well. But he's too good to mm. have gaps like that. I want more George Miller films. And now he's talking about doing a smaller film, and maybe even another smaller film before going back to Mad Max. I wonder if it's the Step restorative up, the restorative powers of penguins. What do you think, Helen? Penguins. <laughs> Helen this, hates penguins. This is. Can I just like just for anyone who doesn't know, I I have a reputation in Empire for hating penguins because I hated March of the Penguins because it has a, a totally disingenuous, unscientific, rubbish narration. Oh, I thought a penguin killed your parents when they came back from the opera one night. That also happened, but I don't like to talk about it. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> I had to review the spoof of March of the Penguins, which had Samuel L. Jackson oh, doing that the voiceover, and that almost made me hate penguins. Yeah. But the, those and then happy, feathery guys, they happy feet, like yeah. having penguins sing just makes no sense. Penguins dancing, that would make sense. Penguins surfing and surfs up totally makes sense. Talking cruel. But singing penguins, just not on board with. So I hate penguins and happy feet. So there you go. George Miller's phenomenal. 70 years old. Ridley Scott, 78. Amazing. Churning them out. It's extraordinary. And this film, I mean, the, the physical exertion to make this film, it took almost three years because they filmed it in 2012. It's taken that long to get it back. I'd be amazed. I mean, we haven't seen The Revenant yet. But for me, George Miller has to be in the Oscar race. Mm. for best director it's going to be very interesting because I'm sure you guys have encountered as well but various directors that I've talked to this year they've all raved about this film yeah. Like yeah. all the directors so given that they vote at the Oscars yeah. for the thing I would not be surprised if he took it Yeah, every director is in awe of what George Miller's done here it's not just that he went out to the desert and got bits of tin as Paul Greengrass would say and, <laughs> and flung them around at each other it's not just that he did that it's not just that he had this incredible vision and he went out there man of his age and showed everyone people half his age what to do with an action scene it's the way that there's not a single frame in this movie that hasn't been manipulated by him in some way mm. you talk about people directing the hell out of a film some shots are speeded up some shots are slowed down almost imperceptibly so but for him so that everything matches up and his master stroke about placing the action of perpetually within the centre of the frame so the eye scan the eye doesn't move around so yeah. it can, these incredibly complex action sequences the geography of the action sequences as well really works for me it's so easy to get lost in scenes like this where characters are you're not quite sure where they are but here it's always clear and it's such a beautiful film like you've got these incredibly grotesque characters obviously among the bad guys the good guys are a little bit better looking it is so beautiful that shot where the convoy is driving into the sandstorm is gorgeous and the night scenes where they're driving through this really Hieronymus Bosch sort of landscape is absolutely incredible. And even the smaller shots there's that shot after the big sandstorm sequence where Max is coming out he's covered in sand and it looks like a sort of a sand hill like a big hill and it, all the sand slowly comes off and he lifts his head up. It's a beautiful shot. Yeah, mm. That's a really great shot. Yeah, There's it's... tons of stuff like that. 
It's a gorgeous film, and there's so much about it that I think that just has, has paved the way. We talked about it at the beginning about how he's trying to constantly push and develop the language of action cinema, and I, I think he really he really managed it here. So many directors said stuff like George Miller's just shown us how to do it, or he's taken us to school, and for me, he's got to be in the conversation for best director. He really should be. Here's another question from atsef 7 Do you think we got the better film in comparison to the 2003 Mel Gibson attempt? What that would have been? Yes. I think so as well. As much as I would have liked to see Mel Gibson in this movie for in this role one last time, I just think the technological advances exactly. between the two films meant that it would, it would have been pretty amazing, but not what we got now. It would have been furious, but not this furious. <laughs> it's hard to imagine it beating this, to be honest. At J underscore Bennett asks, did you feel any sympathy for Nux when he stayed in the war rig rather than going with Max and Furiosa? Yeah, huge amount. Of course. Mm. Yeah. I love Nux by the end. Yeah, absolutely. Spraying his silver cake colouring all over <laughs> his mouth all the time, bless him. Yeah, yeah, he did get to ride a historic, shiny and chrome, but, you know, not in the way that he envisaged it, really. Absolutely. As Miller says, he's got the biggest arc in the film, and Nick Holt was great in that role as well. For me, it, it has to end that way, really. I mean, you know, he is running out of life. He's a man looking for a calling, isn't he? And he finally finds one. Yeah. A decent one, not the yeah. stupid one he's got at the beginning. Absolutely. But, um, yeah. That's a very touching moment. Nux is a great character, I think. He takes on so many different forms and facets throughout the movie. He's probably responsible for, I think, the film's biggest single moment of comedy when he is given the gun by the Morton Joe and gets onto the truck and immediately Keystone cops it <laughs> and falls over and loses the gun and bangs his head. And, <laughs> and even even Joe's going, ah! <laughs> Banging <Medi> his head. <laughs> One of my favourite quotes of the film is that when Joe goes, mediocre! <laughs> Which I've been on the end of a few times. Um, but, yeah, it's true. It's true. And Morton Joe, I even feel a little bit of sympathy for a Morton Joe. I know he's a horrible sort of grisly, bad-haired monster, but yeah, I feel a little bit sorry for him. Is what? that bad? Yeah. I, I shouldn't no, do, I should I? Because he's a bit of a dick. No, I don't think. I don't think that's bad at all. I think the movie. <laughs> a bit of a dick. He's a bit Morton of a dick. Joe, a bit of a dick. Mediocre. <laughs> Mediocre. No, the, I think that's what I find really interesting about the film is that Miller doesn't go out of his way, but he gives. Joe a bit, a bit of humanity. He's a twat but a bit of humanity. The most shocking scene for me, and I don't know what you guys feel about this is not just the death of Splendid, which I didn't really see coming, even the third time I saw it. <laughs> I was surprised. Oh, she's died again. The sequence with her baby. Oh yeah. Every time I've seen this movie with an audience you get a glimpse, just a hint of the dead baby's legs and every audience is just going, oh. I think it's really shocking that he went there, but I mm. think it's really interesting in the context of Joe's emotions. Liam Morton Joe has a very clear goal that he wants a perfect healthy air. air yeah. A healthy air, yeah, absolutely. And he gets this close and he doesn't get it. And he, of course, runs over his favourite bride as well. He's responsible indirectly or directly for her death. And you can see in those little moments just a smidgen of humanity of what was once there. It's, it's the sort of Henry VIII monsterdom, isn't it? Yeah. Really? He's not absolving him of any blame in any of his crimes. I always find it interesting that it's there. And it's in the movie's most shocking moment. For all the movie's brutality, there's not yeah. a lot of blood or anything in the film. But that one moment, I mean, I can't think of too many mainstream movies that have shown even hinted at the corpse of a baby before. And it's just an interesting kind of power structure that he's had to push himself to become more ghoulish looking to get the respect of everyone else and to scare everyone else because you've got all these other freaks and monsters around. Mm. And so he's made himself look as kind of terrifying and whatever. But yeah, he's a fascinating villain, I think. Mm. Really interesting. In a way, the whole movie's about everyone trying to reclaim their humanity in the middle of this wasteland. And Joe, way less than anyone else does it a little bit but even Rictus Erectus I mean you can, when he's sad about the death of his baby brother that's an interesting moment as well but Max mm. reclaims his humanity Nux evolves and reclaims his humanity Furiosa is interesting because she's always in touch with it it's way more under the surface for her 
Yeah, it's there, very it's carefully closer, covered up. Yeah, than it is for anyone else. She has, I think, also one of the most heartbreaking moments when everything she's dreamt of and everything she's lived for, the green place, is revealed to be just so much sludge. Yeah. And she has that scream into the wind. The brown place. Anything else? I just wanted to quote Ian Freer, who I sit next to in the office, who just <laughs> said, this film makes you want to run people over. And I think that says it all. <laughs> I think it says it all about Ian. Yeah, this says a lot about Ian. Oh dear. <laughs> Slightly just, worrying about the film. It didn't make it onto the poster, but maybe next time. Did you want to run anyone over, Helen? I mean, I, I do every day, so I'm, yeah. no, I'm kidding, of course not. But it is a hell of a film, and it does make you want to, at the very least, get behind the wheel of a truck and you blow the horn. You know, the, you've got those yeah. crazy big horns and those Big Mac trucks. Yeah, mm. I considered kind of picking up a chainsaw and pole vaulting across onto a moving vehicle but then I kind of thought nah it's a bit of a bit too much effort I have been working to attach a flamethrower to my electric guitar but I'll be honest it's a slow process and, and now my house is burned down it's a lot of admin yeah do you have to get planning permission for that sort of thing? I mean, it's so they told me when they came to inspect the burned out rubble that was once my home. <laughs> yeah. On that bombshell, thank you for listening to our rambling nonsense. I hope you enjoyed the George Miller interview and indeed this. That is it for this very, very special, very belated Mad Max Fury Road Empire Spoiler Special. Our next Spoiler Special will hopefully be for Spectre with one Mr. Sam Mendes. Fingers crossed he'll be able to spill on everything that he has not thus far been able to spill on. Probably sounds wrong. I should probably rephrase that, but I'm going to pull on. He'll be talking about all the third act stuff and all the revelations in the movie. After that, hopefully we're going to have another belated one as well with Chris McQuarrie coming in to talk about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Very exciting. Keeping peel for spoiler specials plenty. The regular podcast is out every Friday. Do listen to that if you don't already. Until... You hear from us again. It's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from our very own people leader, Nick. I'm off to farm some bullets. <laughs> I've decided to change my job title. <laughs> Bullet farmer. It's goodbye from me, the immortal Chris. Mediocre. <laughs> See you next time.